Shalom, Upper Room fam. This is Rabbi Jason Sobel. It was so great being with you this past weekend. Really important topics that we discussed. What is God's heart for the Palestinians and for Israel? What are God's promises to Israel? Are they the occupiers of the promised land or are they the owners of the promised land? Has God replaced Israel due to their unbelief in Yeshua Jesus as the Messiah? What's going on in Gaza? Where does Hamas occur in the Bible? What is the spirit of Hamas? What does it tell us about the day and time we're living in? What does the scripture say prophetically about the future and the wars and rumors of wars that are going on in the Middle East? How should we understand these things and so much more? I hope it'll be a blessing. Welcome to the Upper Room Dallas podcast. Uh, tonight you have uh, a real privilege to hear from one of my dear friends. Um, I met him in Sean Bowles' backyard. We met and I think it was like 2016, 2017, somewhere in that time frame, I was in Sean's backyard. He was hosting a lunch for leaders, and I sat across from uh, Jason Sobel, and he introduced himself as Rabbi Jason. I'd never met a rabbi before, and um, I just really liked him. We talked about life. We talked about sports, and later that year, he was in Dallas, and he came uh, to the upper room. He didn't speak. He came to my house afterwards and just really ministered to Larissa and I, and a friendship developed, and then in 2020, Larissa and I went on a trip to Israel with him and uh, a group of young leaders, and my life was wrecked. We've talked a lot about Israel since that time. I think I had a heart and a theology for Israel, but I really didn't know God's heart in a personal way until I went to the land and I saw it and experienced it. And um, in light of what's happening culturally, uh, Rabbi Jason and I were on the phone, and him and I have been talking about anti-Semitism for a minute just in America and its rise across the earth. And then since, since October 7th and what took place um, there in southern Israel and the conflict now between uh, Hamas and Israel. Israel's at war. And I believe it has uh, biblical ramifications. And in light of the various narratives that you see, the protests, the outrage, the various sides and the divide that this conflict is causing, I believe the Bible informs us how we're to respond as believers. I really believe that. I believe the Bible is our filter and with such a young audience that Sunday nights um, have become, I wanted Rabbi to come specifically for this service. Um, we, he's, he spoke last night, he spoke this morning, but my heart was to put him before you, uh, oh young believers that are being fed a lot of narratives. And we wanna boldly and confidently tell you what scripture says and informs us about the nation of Israel, about God's heart for Israel, about this conflict and beyond. Uh, Israel tends to be, um, anything, anytime something happens in Israel, specifically around Jerusalem, it's on God's calendar. Um, I believe it is a, a timestamp for us to pay attention. Uh, the coming of the Lord is nearer today than it was yesterday. Amen? We can confidently say that. Uh, but I do believe when uh, things start stirring up in the Middle East, uh, the Bible informs us um, that conflict is coming, that there's great trouble on the horizon. And so I don't want you to be uh, deceived. There's a great falling away that happens in that time, uh, but I think there's a glorious outpouring of God's spirit and a glorious outpouring um, across the earth, but specifically upon the Jewish community. And uh, so Rabbi has really uh, talked through some hard subjects in light of this conflict, and I am confident in his voice. I 
receive him as a teacher, a father, and a prophet in this hour in our house. And I want you to receive him as such. Is that cool? So let's put a smile on her face. And let's welcome Rabbi Jason. I'm going to pray for him. At the, he's going to teach for 40, 50 minutes, and then we're going to have some Q&A at the end, and we're going to minister uh, to one another. So uh, he also has some books, uh, Signs and Secrets of the Messiah. This is his latest one. He's written a number of them. Uh, I would encourage you, as you hear tonight and are provoked, that you take this and you do your own study, that you get your own resources and grow in the knowledge around God's heart for uh, the hour that we're living in, I'll give you some resources as well at the end, but his resources are the best. I can endorse him because I know him, <laughs> and I love you I love so much. Too, Let me pray for you. Jesus, I pray that you would strengthen your servant, that, Lord, you would wield your word uh, through his heart and his words tonight. Lord, would you, would you pierce us? Would you illuminate? Would you remove what needs to be removed? Would you confront what needs to be confronted, Lord Jesus? Even those watching online, those that will watch this online, we pray, Holy Spirit, for the, 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 the grace to grow in understanding, the grace to grow in the knowledge of your word and the knowledge of your son, the knowledge of who he is, the knowledge of his leadership. And so would your leadership mark tonight? Would your leadership mark his words? In Jesus' name, I pray this prayer, amen. Amen. Shalom. Can y'all say shalom? shalom? It's great to be here with you this evening. We love Michael and Larissa. We love this house and just feel so connected. And if this is an important time and season. In fact, I will believe we're living in times that righteous men and women have longed to see, and we have the opportunity to see it. And so you're living in historic, but you're living in prophetically significant times where we're seeing a lot of fulfillment or will see a lot of fulfillment of the things that were spoken of in the prophets and by Jesus' Hebrew name, Yeshua himself. And when you look at what's going on in, in Israel and in Gaza and the Middle East, it's kind of like kind of crazy. It's like, listen, I grew up in the Holy Land, New Jersey, where there were more Jews than in Jerusalem. <laughs> Jersey! And uh, I came to faith in Messiah there, and that's a whole nother story, a supernatural encounter. Israel is the size of New Jersey, and if you think people would fight over things, you'd say, like, Hawaii seems a pretty beautiful place to fight over for me. I'm not sure, you know. But the thing about Israel is this. Why is, why is the world focused on Israel? Why is there so much fighting over this piece of land? The whole world focused on this tiny little piece of real estate, Obviously, there's something spiritually significant about that. And uh, that reminds me of a story. Uh, Billy Graham goes to Rome, and he's with the Pope, and he's in his office, and he sees there's this gold phone on his desk, and he says to the Pope, what is that? He goes, listen, the Pope says, that's a telephone call. That's a direct line from heaven. When God's not answering the prayers, we can pick that up, and we can get him on the phone. And he said, wow, can I try it? And the Pope is like, no way. It's like... $10,000 a minute. We only use it in cases of emergency. Very expensive. Then Billy goes to Israel, and he's in the chief rabbi's office, and he sees a phone on the desk. He says, I think I know what that is, rabbi, but tell me what it is. He goes, yeah, that's a direct line from heaven. He goes, well, 
I would ask you if I could give it a try, but I was in Rome, and I know how expensive it is. And the rabbi's like, how expensive? Did they tell you? He says, $10,000 a minute. He goes, that's crazy. And Billy's like, how much is it to call from, from here in Jerusalem? He said, it's 10 cents a minute. He goes, I don't get it. $10,000 a minute, 10 cents a minute. And the rabbi looks at him, and he says, Billy, you should get it. From Jerusalem, it's a local call. That's my inner Jerry Seinfeld. Forgive me, no extra charge for that. Maybe if you're nice, I'll rap later. But only if Miller does, only if Miller does. So here's the point. There is, the reason why it's a local call is because there is a special connection. Jerusalem is the place where heaven and earth connect. It's the reason why God says his house would be established on that mountain in Jerusalem. It's the reason why Jesus died on the cross in Jerusalem. It's the reason why Jesus isn't coming back to Salt Lake City, but the new Jerusalem is coming where the current Jerusalem is. Because there's something that has always been spiritually significant about that place from God's perspective. And that's why there has been so much contention over it. And I believe we have to understand what is going on because the world has for years struggled to solve this problem. And part of the issue is you can't solve a spiritual problem with a political solution. And so the world is trying to come up with all these political solutions. And of course, you have to try. But the reality is, ultimately, they're not going to work because the heart of it is spiritual. And so we have to understand spiritually what is going on. And when we approach this issue, because there's good people on both sides of the coin, those that are adamantly pro-Israel, those are adamantly standing with the Palestinians, but unfortunately, there is a lot of hate around this subject. So first and foremost, if we're going to talk about the subject, if we're going to engage in the subject, we have to come at it from the heart and spirit of Yeshua, Jesus, our Messiah. And I think there's an important insight that he gives us in the Sermon on the Mount where in Matthew 5, he says this, you shall love your neighbor, you've heard it said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for who? For who? So that you may be called what? I can't hear you guys. You know me called what? For if you love those, if you only love those who love you, what reward do you have? So Yeshua is very clear. Whatever side you are on, you're called to pray for the other side. God is pro-Israel, but he's also for the Palestinians. He died for both. As a Messianic Jew, if you're someone who is, really believes pro-Israel, here's the reality. You have an extra responsibility. I have an extra responsibility to pray for the Palestinians. 
I have an extra responsibility to pray for God's protection over the innocent Palestinians. And I even have the responsibility, I believe, to pray for Hamas and those who would love to kill me. Because you know what? The power, the gospel is the power of God unto salvation, even for terrorists. I never forget, I got a call from my friend Lou Angles. You guys like Lou? He says, Jason, how do you break the spirit of anti Semitism? It's my best Lou Angle impression, sorry. So I said, Lou, it's the coming together of Ruth and Boaz. Ruth was a Gentile, Boaz was a Jew. When Ruth and Boaz came together, they birthed the line of the Messiah. And when Jew and Gentile come together, we will birth the kingdom of God on earth as it is in heaven. So we had me share this at the call of Detroit, 50, 60,000 people. When I'm done sharing this message, spontaneously, unexpectedly, a gentleman from a Lebanese Arab Muslim background that came to faith in Jesus, took the microphone. He said, I came to this country as a terrorist. I hated Israel. I hated America. I hated the Jewish people. I wanted to harm, but I had an encounter with Jesus and he changed my life. I want to forgive you for my hatred. And he gets down on one knee. I get down on one knee. We have a time of reconciliation and forgiveness and repentance. And we declare the sons of Isaac and the sons of Ishmael, the sons of Israel, the sons of Ishmael are coming back together. And the Holy Spirit falls in power on the place. And the next day, this young girl comes up to me. She was also Lebanese. She said, during the Israeli-Lebanon war, my grandparents were killed in the fighting, and I've hated Israel and Israelis and Jewish people ever since. She said, but when I saw what happened last night, I was so moved by God in the Spirit, I want to ask if you would pray for me that God would help give me a heart for Israel and the Jewish people. Friends, if God can save Kamal, who was a terrorist, and change his heart and life, he can touch Hamas. Maybe you heard the story of the son of Hamas who came to faith, right? So we need to pray, we need to believe, we need to intercede. And if you're a believer who is, you know, doesn't, you know, maybe you don't know what to think about Israel, and maybe you're an Arab Christian or a Muslim background believer, then you especially have the responsibility to pray for Israel. It is a biblical command in the Psalms. Shalu shalom Yerushalayim. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. Those who love you will prosper. To pray Psalm 122 verse 6. You know, you have to do this even if you think Israel is wrong. If you don't, you are no better than a pagan. We need to pray for those who we think hate us. We need to pray for those who we think are even our enemies because that is the power of the gospel and the command, about Yesh the command Yeshua gives to us as his disciples. It's not always easy, but it's the, but it's the call. I care about Israel and I care about the Palestinians 
And what I see going on in the world today is crazy. There is hate that is arising. Where I live, there was a pro-Palestinian demonstration and a smaller pro-Israeli demonstration. And one of the pro-Palestinian demonstrators went over, punched a 69-year-old Jewish man, and he fell down, hit his head, and died the next day. This is not how God wants us to respond. There is a spirit that hates not just Israel, hates Jewish people in the world. And of course, we gotta be against any anti-Arab spirit in the world because God is love. But I do think we need to ask the question, what is God's heart for Israel? And I think there's a verse that we might not necessarily think of, but I think it's an important verse. It's John 1:14. And the word became flesh and what? Friends, that is a critically important verse. Let me tell you why I love this verse. I grew up in a Jewish household. I, went, I was working in the music industry as a hip-hop DJ, trying to make music, okay? <laughs> Worked with a lot of famous hip-hop artists, old-school guys. And I looked at the lives of these famous people, and I said, there has to be more to life than just this. This is what set me on my spiritual journey. But as I was seeking God, studying with my rabbi, studying Eastern philosophy, studying all these different things, when I finally read the New Testament after I had an encounter in heaven with, with Jesus... The thing that blew me away, in every other faith, God is up in heaven and man is down here. And it might say God is a loving God or a caring God, but in most ways, God is distant. The beautiful thing about the incarnation is that God stepped out of time and eternity he stepped out of paradise and perfection into this broken world and was willing to experience hurt, pain, shame, brokenness, all because he wanted to identify with us and love us and redeem us and rescue us from all of it. And so we think of his greatest sacrifice as his death on the cross, but the incarnation, God taking on a human form, he's the only 200% person, 100% God, and 100% man to ever live. And he doesn't just take on human humanity, a human a nature for just a few years, he takes it on forever. Even in heaven, you can see the scars in his hands and the piercing in his side. Incarnation is about identification. He identifies with each one of us and he knows what you've gone through. That's the love of God for us. And therefore, we have a high priest who can empathize and sympathize with our struggles and therefore, we can become boldly before his throne of grace. But there's something else there. When the word of God becomes flesh and dwells among us, the genealogies of Matthew and Luke are very clear. He is both the son of Abraham and he is Ben David, the son of David, according to the prophecies of the Hebrew scriptures. 
from the tribe of Judah. That means when Jesus came, he, as in the incarnation, he came in Jewish flesh. Jesus was Jewish. But not just was, he still is the lion of the tribe of Judah. He still is the king of the Jews. They will all recognize one day and the king of the world. But here's the thing. If you want to be my friend and you want to be close to me, but you hate my children, uh, we're not going to be very close. If you love me, I don't love, besides the Lord, I don't love anything more than my wife and children. And if you hate them, we're not going to be close. You can't say you love Jesus the Jew and hate the Jewish people. Come on. And I think that's important. Jesus is Jewish. He loves his people. And what we have to understand is that Yeshua Jesus is also the one man Israel. His life embodies the history and destiny of Israel and ultimately the promises are fulfilled in him. He has to relive the history of God's people and get it right everywhere where we got it wrong. So think about it. Jesus dies on a what? On a cross. We could say Jesus died on a tree. The cross is a tree. Why? Adam and Eve took from the tree something they shouldn't. They brought the fall. So God puts Jesus back on the tree for you and me to undo what the first man and woman did. When he's born, they try, Herod tries to kill the babies. Why? Because when Moses was born, Pharaoh tried to kill the babies. Think about it for a moment. When Jesus is on the cross, there are how many hours of darkness? Three, why? Because, well, let me back up. What's the first miracle Jesus did? He turned the water into what? What's the first miracle Moses did? He turned the water into what? Blood. Why does Moses turn it into blood and Jesus turn it into wine? Because he's the greater than Moses, but he doesn't come to bring death. He comes to bring life that you might have it more abundantly. Turn to someone and say, he came to bring you abundant life. And then when he dies on the cross, there's how many hours of darkness? Three hours. Why? What's the ninth plague on Egypt? Three days of darkness. And what's the tenth plague in Egypt? The death of the firstborn son with the blood of the lamb on the doorpost. That's God's firstborn son dying at Passover as the Passover lamb spilling his blood that we might find a greater redemption. He has a what on his head? Crown of thorns. Why? Because when Moses appears to God in the bush, in the Hebrew it says it was a burning thorn bush. Because God is saying, I feel and identify with the pain of my people in Egypt. He feels Israel's pain and he still does. And Jesus with the crown of thorns on it says, it says I feel the pain of all humanity and I'm taking the curse of creation that the ground would produce thorns and thistles on my head to break the curse and restore the blessing. Yeah. 
He's tested for 40 days in the wilderness. Why? Because Israel failed for 40 years in the wilderness and he passed the test where Israel failed. He relives the history. He gets it right to redeem us and rescue us. The Last Supper was a Passover Seder. He rose from the dead on the Jewish holiday of first fruits. He poured out his Holy Spirit on Pentecost, which is a biblical holiday in Leviticus 23 called Shavuot. On the same day God gives his spirit was the same day the Ten Commandments, the Torah was given on Mount Sinai, word and spirit on the same day. And in Acts chapter one, he's talking to the disciples after his resurrection. And while they, while, now while staying with them, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for what the Father promised, which he said, you've heard from me. For John immersed with water, but you shall be immersed in the Ruach HaKodesh, the Holy Spirit, not many days from now. So when they gathered together, the next verse, they asked him, his disciples asked Yeshua Jesus, Lord, are you restoring the kingdom to Israel at this time? The disciples who sat at the feet of Jesus three and a half years, who had the mysteries of the kingdom taught to them for 40 days after the resurrection, their question was, Lord, are you gonna restore the kingdom to Israel at this time? What this says is that they believed in a literal, physical fulfillment of the promises to Israel and the Jewish people and a restoration of the kingdom in the land. So were the disciples wrong? To understand this, we have to go back to the beginning because there is an accusation being lobbied against the Jewish people that says that the Jewish people are occupiers and occupying a land that they stole from the Arab peoples, from the Palestinians. This is an emotional issue, it's a difficult issue, but we have to ask the question, what do the scriptures have to say? If we are followers of Jesus, it's not the secular media, it's not social influencers that determine our perspective, but it is scripture that determines what we believe, okay? Those other things can inform, but the foundation, the bottom line, where we ultimately say this is what it is, is from the scripture. God makes what is known as the Abrahamic covenant with the Jewish people in Genesis chapter 12. He reaffirms his covenant with Israel in Genesis chapter 15. In Genesis chapter 15, he, makes, he reaffirms the covenant, and this is what we have to understand. In ancient times, in the ancient Near East, when you made a covenant, most covenants were bilateral, say bilateral. That meant two parties entered into the covenant. And most covenants were conditional. That meant both sides had to keep their end of the deal in order for the, for the covenant to remain intact and in force. And so what they would do is both parties would take sacrifices, they would sa sacrifice those animals, and both parties would walk between the bodies of those two animals symbolizing that they were both entering into the covenant, both taking conditions upon themselves 
And if either one of them broke that covenant, that what happened to those animals should happen to them. But in Genesis chapter 15, when God makes his covenant with Israel, Abraham is put into a deep sleep. And only God passes between the parts as a fiery, smoking furnace. What it's saying, what it's teaching us is that when God made a covenant with Israel, it was unilateral. He alone took it upon himself, and it was unconditional. What this meant is that God would keep his promises that he made, which included the Jewish people would always survive, that that they'd had the promise of the land, and we'll look at the boundaries of the land in a minute, no matter what, even when they messed up, God would keep it, even when the children of Israel didn't keep it. And this is good news, as we're gonna see for all of us. See, it's kind of like this. I have a 17-year-old son, and I got him a car when he was old enough to drive, and he was very excited the day he got the keys. And it's his car, no one else drives it, but uh, every now and then, he's 17 years old, and he doesn't listen, and he does something wrong. And uh, on rare occasions, we've, I've had to ground him, and one was you know, not too long ago, and I had to decide, was I gonna take his phone or take his keys? I don't know which one was worse. So we took the keys to his car, and even though I took the keys to his car, he always knew that when his grounding was over, he was gonna get the keys back. See, when Israel disobeys, God might temporarily took the keys, meaning, man, you can't drive the car, you, you, you can't you know, fully possess the land, even though there's always been Jewish people in the land. But the promise is that he would always give the keys back one day. And God gave those keys back in 1948, which we'll get into. And this is what God says to Abraham in Genesis chapter 15. Bayom ha'hu karat Adonai et Avraham more. On that day, God cut or made a covenant saying, Lizaracha to your seed, Natati et to Aretz Hazot, I will give this land, Minahar Mitzrayim, from the river of Egypt, Ad Hanahar Hagadol Nahar Parat, until the great river, the river of Euphrates. That means the biblical boundaries of the promised land are from the river Egypt to the river Euphrates in Iraq. Israel has never had the fullness of those boundaries, but in the kingdom they will. He goes on to say in Genesis 17, Genesis 17, 8, that is an everlasting possession to the Jewish people. So in this, Israel is not the occupiers, but they are the rightful owners of the land according to the scripture. Because God created the world, he can give it to whomever he wants. Now I want to be clear. I am not saying this means Israel should kick the Palestinians out of the land. Palestinians should have their homes, they should live in the land, but we need to learn to live in peace. And Israel is not there illegitimately because the claim is we have no historical right or claim to be there and that we made this up or the Jewish people aren't the real people of the Bible. Friends, this is not true. Look at the archeology span going back thousands and thousands of years The covenant between Abraham and God was established in 1884 BC. That's 2,484 years 
between Islam began and there was any other claims on the land. And this is important, even for us. Because if God can't keep his promises to Israel, what makes you think he's gonna keep his promises to you? Either God keeps his promises or he doesn't keep his promises. See, we in our, part of the problem is we in the West, even in the church, unfortunately, operate on the mindset of contract where God operates on the basis of covenant. Contractual relationship says, listen, things are good between us as long as you meet your end of the bargain, I'll eat my end of the bargain and we're good. We treat people like they're our personal ISPs, not internet service providers, but intimate service providers. And as long as they don't meet our personal needs, we're like, see you later, I'm out of here, I'm gonna find someone else who will, and therefore we run out on our marriages when we don't like the other person or they don't meet our needs because we treat marriages like they're contracts and instead of like they're covenants. We run out on relationships, we run out on friendships, we run out on our church because it's all about meeting my needs and as soon as you don't meet my needs, that's it, I am out of here. But God doesn't operate on that basis. We need to go from understanding things as a contract to understanding things as a covenant. God says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. I am with you always, even to the end of the age, for better, for worse, or sickness in his health. He is the bridegroom, you're the bride, and he will love you until your very last breath, no matter what. He keeps his promise. And this is what we have to understand. We see this in Romans 9, 10, and 11. Paul's talking about the great doctrines of faith, all of sin and fall short of the glory of God. We're justified by faith. We're sanctified, meaning we're conformed to his image and likeness, those who believe, and one day we'll be glorified. And then all of a sudden he gets into this discussion about Israel, chapter nine, their past riches to them is the covenant and the temple and the worship and even the Messiah according to his human flesh. Romans 10, he says, listen, Israel has zeal but not according to knowledge. They love the God of the Bible, but they don't know the Messiah. And he says, I wish I could be cut off so that they could be saved. That's how much the apostle Paul loved them. That's their present predicament. But Romans chapter 11 is the promise of their future. And listen to what Paul says in Romans chapter 11 about the promises that he has to Israel this is what he says, I love it. Romans 11, 11 and following, he says this. I say then, did they stumble as to fall? May it never be. But if their false step, as a result, salvation has come to the Gentiles to provoke Israel to jealousy. Now if their transgressions leads to riches for the world, and their loss for riches for the Gentile, how much more their fullness. But I am speaking to you who are Gentiles, insofar as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I spotlight my ministry of somehow I might provoke to jealousy 
the people of my own flesh and blood and save some of them. For if the rejection leads to reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? Paul talks about the proof that God has not rejected or replaced Israel or reneged on the promises. And the first thing Paul says, listen, God chose me, a persecutor of the early believers. He wouldn't have chosen me if he was done with Israel and the Jewish people and his promises. Then he says, there's a remnant. He says, as it was in the days of Elijah, Elijah thought he was the only one, and God said to him, there's 7,000 who haven't bowed their knee to Baal. Friends, there has always been a remnant of Jews who have believed I'm part of that remnant standing before you today. That is proof that God is not done with Israel, and he promises that, he says in Romans 11, they are enemies for the sake of the gospel, but they are beloved for the sake of the fathers. That means even when Jewish people act bad, don't believe the gospel, there's still love, there's still promises, and they're gonna be provoked to jealousy. All Israel will be saved one day, and when that happens, it's gonna be life from the dead. This is what Jesus said. He said, you will not see me again until you say, Baruch HaBab Hashem and I, blessed be he who comes in the name of the Lord. The Jewish people have to be in the land, in the land in unbelief before they come, and we'll get more into that in a moment. But this is important. Why does Paul stick Romans in the, in the cent- this message on Israel in the heart of the book of Romans? Because listen, Romans chapter eight says this, not height nor depth nor width nor principality can separate us from the love that is in Jesus. Well, then the question is, is that really true? Because weren't the Jewish people put away? Because that's what some of the, those in the Roman church thought. And Paul is like, listen, the fact that God is not done with Israel and he hasn't rejected them is the proof he will never reject you. Because God is faithful to Israel, it is the proof that he will be faithful to you even when you mess up. And that's important because we live in a world where people don't keep their word and people don't keep their promises, but God always does. And then we come to another key passage, Ezekiel 37. You're familiar with it, the valley of the dry bones. God takes Ezekiel to this valley. He shows them all these dry bones. He says, these bones are the house of Israel that say our bones have dried up. And God says to Ezekiel, can these bones live? And he has Ezekiel prophesy to the bones. And the bones begin to shake and quake and rumble. Bone to bone become connected Flesh comes on the bones, but yet there is no life in the body that has been restored. And he says, prophesy again from the four winds comes the breath of God into the, into the bodies that are there that represent Israel. And a great multitude rise to their feet. What the heck is going on here? It is a two-stage prophecy. One is, is the bones coming together without the breath is Israel being regathered from the nations of the world and restored to their land according to God's promises, but in a state of unbelief. That happened in 1948. 
when Israel became a nation after almost 2,000 years. There are more Jewish people in the land today than anywhere in the world the first time since the days of Daniel and the Babylonian captivity. Here's something crazy. West Point studies every spiritual conflict. One, one general at West Point says, we don't study the 1948 War of Independence in Israel because you can't learn anything from a miracle. Because there's no other way this little nation being attacked by six surrounding nations with no modern armaments wins the battle unless it's God. Listen, God will fulfill the promise even when it seems impossible. And the second stage is the breath coming in the bones and a great army rising to the feet. We're waiting for that day that will happen right before the second coming or at the second coming when the Jewish people will recognize that he is the Messiah and they'll look to him and they'll receive him. They'll look upon the one whom they have pierced, Zechariah 12, 10, and mourn for him as one mourns for an only begotten son. Why do I say this? Because one of the things that is being said today is that Israel has no right to be in the land because they don't believe in Jesus and they have been replaced Romans 9, 10, 11 makes it clear Israel has not been replaced by the church. If you spiritualize the promises, how can you ever know that any of those promises are gonna be maintained to you? But the other thing is, they say, well, they're not believers, so they don't have a right. They only have a right if they're believers in Jesus, Yeshua. But Ezekiel 37 says, no, they're coming back in unbelief. That's all the passages of the prophets. And it's only when they return. It's like Joseph is a type of Jesus. The first time the brothers go down to Egypt and they see Joseph, they meet Joseph, they don't know it's Joseph. It's only the second time that they come down that he takes off the Egyptian garments and they recognize that's their brother. That's the second coming. That's the picture of the scriptures. Part of the reason why they don't recognize him is because he walks like an Egyptian, talks like an Egyptian. Some of you aren't old enough to remember that. That's okay. It's not until he takes off the Egyptian garment that, and they, they recognize, listen, we've made Jesus into an Egyptian. He's unrecognizable as one of Joseph's brothers. I don't know, like for example, I don't know how the Passover lamb became the Easter ham. That is a mystery I'll ask Jesus one day when I get to heaven. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with ham, but it's just like very different. It's another story. But then I wanna talk a little bit quickly about what's going on today in the land right now. Israel went to war in Gaza because there's this organization called Hamas. Hamas is a radical, militant, Islamist organization that doesn't recognize the right of Israel to exist. They're bent on the destruction of Israel. And by the way, they hate Christians as much as they hate Jews. Again, I'm not saying Arab peoples, I'm talking about, or Palestinians, I'm saying radical extremists. So I wanna be clear. But what's interesting is that in Matthew 24, 26, Jesus says this, as it was in the days of Noah, so will it be in the days of the Son of Man. Well, why is that significant? You know the first place the word Hamas 
the word Hamas actually occurs in the Bible? Genesis chapter 6, 11, the Timale Haaretz Hamas, and it says, and the earth was filled with violence. And Genesis, Genesis 6 goes on to say, God destroyed the world because of Hamas. And then Jesus says, as it was in the days of Noah, so will it be. Friends, this is no coincidence. Everything is in the Bible so that we would understand. There was Hamas in the days of Noah. There is Hamas today. These are the days of Noah that we're living in. We cannot be unaware. And I'm not saying that the, when, when it says Hamas in Genesis 6, it's not literally talking about the, the group Hamas, the organization Hamas, but what it's talking about is the spirit of Hamas, which is a spirit of violence and hatred. And we see this in the world today. Another use of the word Hamas is in the book of Obadiah. It says, May Hamas Achicha Yaakov, because of your violence, because of the violence that you did to your brother Jacob, shame will cover you and you will be cut off forever. Well, the book of Obadiah is talking about Hamas. It's talking about this judgment on this people because of Hamas. Who is the people that is being judged? It is the nation known as Edom, Edom or Edom in the Bible, descendants of Esau. And what's crazy about that is that the most notorious descendant of Esau in the five books of Moses is a bad dude by the name of Amalek. Have you heard of Amalek? Exodus 17, 16, it's the first nation to attack Israel after they come out of Egypt. And God says this, because the Lord has sworn, the Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. Exodus tells us God is always at war with Amalek and the spirit of Amalek. Why does God hate Amalek and the spirit of Amalek? Because who does Amalek attack when Israel comes out of Egypt? He attacks the weak and the helpless, the Bible tells us. He attacks the old people, he attacks the women, and he attacks the children. It is the spirit of oppression, racism, and discrimination in every generation. This is the spirit of Amalek. And God says, I hate the spirit of Amalek. I will be at war with it from every generation. And as you see, who comes from Amalek as a descendant? Haman in the book of Esther. The first person who wants to commit genocide and destroy the Jewish people because Mordechai, one Jewish guy, won't bow down to Haman, and so he wants to wipe every Jew out as a result. Why do I bring this up? Haman was in what country? Persia. Where is Persia today? It's modern Iran. Where does Hamas get its funding? Where does Hezbollah in the north get its funding? Who is the greatest funder of terrorism in the world today? It is Iran, it is Persia, it is Haman, it is the spirit of Amalek, and Iran's commitment is to wipe the Jewish people off the face of the map, wipe, wipe, wipe Christians in the west off the map, because in their mind, that's what has to happen for the Mahdi, their Messiah, to come and establish their version of the kingdom from 
this Islamic point of view in this radical Islam. This is what we are facing. This is what Israel is facing. This is what Christians are facing. Friends, make no mistake about it. I can understand, look, our hearts should go out to the Palestinians. I can understand Christians supporting, wanting to see the Palestinians have freedom in the land. But we have to understand, when I see Christians supporting Hamas and what they're doing, I'm like, are you crazy? This is number one, the spirit of Amalek. Number two, if you go to Israel and you go to Bethlehem, you will see Christians are being systematically persecuted by radical Islam in Israel and throughout the Middle East. And most Arabs would rather live in Israel than under Palestinian control for that reason. And most of the Palestinians have their own, I mean, they have their own autonomy. It's their leaders and their causes being hijacked by Iran and, these, and, and by this Amalek spirit, which, is, which, is a, which in the Bible talks about as Hamas's lawlessness, it's theft, it's an antichrist spirit. Of all these things that we see going on in the world today, it is the spirit of Amalek being released in our world, the spirit of Hamas being released in our world once again. And I think one of the reasons why upper room and why you're here is so important because Amalek and Haman and Hamas is associated with doubt and with becoming cold in your relationship with God. Only reason why Amalek was able to attack Israel when they came out of Egypt, you can read about it in Exodus 17, is because the people said, is God among us or not? And they doubted God and his goodness. And it opened the door for attack. Friends, this is what we're seeing in the world today. Even among believers, there is a doubt in God's word. There is a doubt whether Jesus is the only way. There is a doubt of biblical worldview and of morality that we see flooding the world today. And as, as Michael said earlier, there is gonna be a great falling away and we need to know God's word and stay close to him to make sure we're not deceived by all the false information that is coming after us. Which is gonna become crazier when you've got AI technology and all these things that can make anything look real even if it's not. Talk about a next level for fake news and the ability to trick people, okay? There is a spirit of Amalek, but we need to come against it and to stay close and to bless the Lord and to bless Israel. And of course, you wanna bless the Palestinians, but we need to understand that God says, I will bless those who bless Israel and curse those who curse Israel. And in him, all the nations of the world will be blessed. Listen, Paul says in Ephesians 2, you Gentiles who were once far you have been brought near and you have become part of the commonwealth of Israel. Guess what? You're part of Israel. You are part of God's commonwealth of Israel. What that means is you are now partakers of the promises. Unfortunately, in the church, somehow the, the nations who became believers 
became overtakers instead of partakers. Heirs in Messiah, partakers, but not overtakers. And you become part of the Commonwealth. It doesn't mean that you're Jewish, but what it means is kind of like if you go to the UK and you go to, listen, we would never want to, if you were in Ireland, you would never want to call a person there, hey, you're British. Those could be fighting words, right? Or if you're Scottish. Scotland, Ireland, England, they're all, they're, they all have their own distinct uh, identities, but they're part of a united kingdom because they have a common king or queen and a common commitment to a shared identity and destiny, and you are part of the commonwealth of Israel. That means we have a common king. His name is Yeshua Jesus, and he's on the throne. That means we have a common destiny. Zechariah 14 says Jew and Gentile are going up in the Messianic kingdom to the new Jerusalem to worship together. And we have a common commitment to bring the kingdom of God on earth as it is in heaven. Amen? Amen. Amen. All right. Michael, you want to come up? (laughs) I could keep going, but we'll bring you up. (laughs) I know that's a lot to take in in a short time. You're like a ninja up here. (laughs) Good night. I'm just going to sit. I'm going to sit closer (laughs) and listen. Um, You mentioned Ezekiel. Well, let me ask you this. Uh, One of the, this is is going to be an ever-increasing issue of division within the church, Uh, our stance uh, upon this subject. And one of the, one of the counter arguments is that God is, uh, that the Jews, it's a dual covenant, that he has a covenant with us as believers, but he has a covenant with them, that he's operating under two covenants and addressing salvation in two different ways. And so how would you answer that if someone is listening to this because we're, we're only saved through Jesus? So how would you address someone in the, the dualistic covenant understanding that they have a, they're under a different covenant or a different relationship than we are with him. So let's just clarify the question. Theologically, there's something known as dual covenant theology. Dual covenant theology says Jewish people are saved under the covenant God made with Moses, and the nations are saved under the new covenant that God made through Jesus. First of all, I want to say this is part of political correctness. Part of the problem is, is well-meaning Christians, oftentimes when they, want, when they get the revelation of Israel and want to bless Israel, they connect with Jewish people or Orthodox Jews who are not followers of Messiah in order to maintain those relationships and connections it's easier to believe in dual covenant theology because it it doesn't ruffle the feathers in the relationship. But friends, saying that Jews don't need Jesus to be saved is a lie. First of all, all the apostles were Jewish. Secondly, Jesus said salvation is of the Jews to the woman at the well, John chapter four. Second of all, on the day of Pentecost, Jesus preached and, well, 
Peter preached the message of the gospel and thousands of Jews believed and were baptized. The whole premise of what Jesus did for us in part is based on Jeremiah 31 where it says, I will make a new covenant. But what does it say? I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel, not like the one I made with their forefathers when I brought them out of the land of Egypt because they broke it. So even the new covenant is in the context of Israel. What did Jesus say? He said, I came to bring salvation to whom? To the lost sheep of the house of Israel. There is no possible way without doing an incredible amount of gymnastics and twisting of the scriptures that you could ever say that Jewish people don't need Yeshua Jesus to have the certainty of eternal life. Amen. (laughs) Um, From an eschatology standpoint, which means the end times, what's to come as we look ahead from uh, a Jewish perspective, someone that isn't saved, studies the Torah, would they read Ezekiel 37 the same way that you did tonight? That the rebirth of Israel in 1948 was Ezekiel's prophecy in Ezekiel 37. If so, where do they see this going? Yes. Where we, 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 we know the end from the beginning, reading the Bible, the Bible's a complete book, but it's unfinished, and we see where this is going, but where would they, from a Jewish perspective, what are they looking for? Um, what, what is a Jewish view of eschatology? Yeah, so the short answer is where there's three Jews, there's six opinions. But the overall answer is yes, Jewish people see the restoration of Israel in 1948 as the fulfillment of the first half of Ezekiel's pro- prophecy It's actually called in Jewish prayers, the first fruit of the flowering of our redemption. So it's seen as the beginning, a key step on the road to the final redemption that will come through the Messiah. So briefly, the Jewish uh, eschatology is this, that there'll be a time known as Jacob's Troubles. The time of Jacob's troubles will begin with a great uh, world war, nations coming against uh, Israel. In fact, there's an ancient Jewish prophecy that the king of Persia, which is Iran, will stir up the king of Saudi Arabia, and there'll be this great war in, between the Arab worlds and with Israel. So there'll be this war that will lead to the Messiah's coming, that will, lead to the re- that will lead to the final s- redemption of Israel from among the nations, the establishment of the temple in Jerusalem, and a time of peace in the world. So they're looking for a Messiah. Yes, Jewish pe- every, who, tra- every Jew who is a, a traditional Scripture believing, believes the Hebrew scripture, is looking for a literal Messiah, a descendant of David, who is going to have to come. In fact, in Jewish thought, there's what's known as two Messiahs. The first Messiah is known as the Messiah, son of Joseph. Like Joseph, he's rejected by his brothers and suffers. In Jewish thought, the Messiah of Joseph is going to have to suffer and die, like in Isaiah 53. He dies. 
And then there is another Messiah who comes, who is the son of David, who defeats Israel's enemies in battles and establishes the kingdom. So they think, many of them think two Messiahs. We say not two Messiahs, one Messiah, two comings. The first time he came as the lion of the tribe of Judah, the first time he came as the lamb of God, suffered and dies, but when he returns, he's coming back as the lion of the tribe of Judah to rule and reign. Amen. <laughs> um, which leads to the ending of Ezekiel 37, because we read the first, there's three sections in Ezekiel yeah. 37. It talks about uh, the body coming together, but it doesn't have a life. It, it doesn't have breath yet. It talks about unity, Judah and Israel will be one, but then it, it says that, that they will have a shepherd and that that shepherd will make a covenant of peace and will restore that land. So from a New Testament perspective, a new covenant perspective, do we see that as the coming of the Lord establishing a millennial reign? Yes, absolutely. I mean, I think it's, uh, it's clear from... Uh, the scriptures that even Zechariah 14 says Israel will be surrounded by her enemies. It will seem as if everything is going to be lost. Messiah comes on the cloud of heavens, even in Jewish thought. He defeats the enemies of Israel, and then all the world turns to him. From a biblical perspective, we also believe that it's, it's at that time that what Paul says in Romans, all Israel will be saved. All Israel at the second coming, they're about to be destroyed. They see the Messiah coming on the clouds of heaven. They realize this is the one whom they have pierced, and they turn their hearts, and they believe in Yeshua as the Messiah, and he comes and establishes his kingdom in the midst of them about to be destroyed when all their enemies attack them. How can you, just on a practical level, what, what's going on currently, the, the, the conflict between the Arabs and our not necessarily the Arabs, but Hamas and Israel, but you do have such a division between those that support the Jews and support the Arabs or the Palestinians. How can you counsel us in engaging people that might be pro-Palestinian and say, you know, Israel's committing genocide? Uh, just when you get into the nuance of what's currently happening right now, right. how do you navigate that personally and how can you encourage us? Right, right. So I think that's a great question. Two major charges. Israel's are occupiers. They have no right to the land. We looked at that scripturally. The other is that one of the, one of the things that's being said is Israel is committing genocide. Friends, look, it breaks my heart that there are innocent Palestinians that are dying, but we need to understand it's because Hamas uses them as human shields. They put their military bases in hospitals, in schools, they hide their weapons, they go out in ambulances with sick people, and you can even like read the articles online. They say things like, well, they were asked by an Arab TV station in Saudi Arabia, one of the leaders of Hamas, you, you build 900 kilometers of tunnels underground, but why don't you build bomb shelters for the people? And they say, that's not our responsibility. Well, if you're the leaders, they are the, gov they are the government that controls Gaza. Uh, they are responsible, you would think, right? But getting to the deeper question, it is, I'm going to say this as clearly as I can, it is a 100% lie. There is no basis, not one bit of basis, that Israel is committing genocide. By, you can't change the definition of a word. Genocide is, by definition, the systematic 
murder of an entire group of people intentionally. So think about it. The majority of Palestinians don't live in Gaza. The majority of Palestinians live in the West Bank. There is no, nothing going on in the West Bank to attack the Palestinians, okay? Systematically attack and wipe them out. None at all. Friends, there are two million Palestinians that have Israeli citizenship, that live in Israel, have 100% rights in the land, right to vote, sit in the parliament, the Knesset of Israel, have political parties, sit on the Supreme Court of Israel. They are under no threat. As we said, many of them read what they have to say. They're grateful to be in Israel. If Jews were committing genocide like Hitler, they would start by wiping out the people in their own land, which in their own Palestinians in Israel itself, which they're not doing, which they're not doing in the West Bank. And so therefore, you can't call it a genocide. You could say it's tragic what has happened. You can question the methods that Israel is using. Is this the best way to rid Hamas? Okay, it's a very challenging and difficult situation because I believe ultimately getting rid of Hamas could lead to the real freedom for many of the Palestinians in Gaza that are, that are forced to live under this terrorist organization. Many don't want to live under it. They don't have a choice. So there's no way you can call it genocide. And at the same time, the other accusation is that Israel is an apartheid state. For you guys, apartheid is like in South Africa where white people had rights to vote and to sit in government and everything, they had everything, and the, uh, uh, the African, the indigenous black South Africans were segregated and persecuted on the basis of the color of their skin, which is 100% wrong. But we said, in Israel, Palestinians have 100% same legal rights and protection as Israelis. There are no separate schools uh, or separate buses or they're not denied the right to vote. They sit in the government. So again, you can't call it an apartheid state. You can't call it a genocide. It's not based in the reality of the facts on the ground. It is meant to stir people up. It's propaganda. One more question, and then I well, two more questions. The last one's going to lead us into ministry. Uh, a phrase you hear a lot is from the river to the sea. And some of the protests, I've seen signs even today. Um, and and that, that's a loaded statement. Can you speak into that just a little yeah. bit? I'm talking about the, the idea of genocide yeah. and what that phrase actually means. Yeah, so... Let me give you a little context, just very quick. 1948, there is a large group of Jewish people living in a section of Israel. There's a large group of Arabs that later go on to call themselves Palestinians living in the land. Britain has control of the land given to them by the United Nations after World War I. They pull out and the United Nations decides they are gonna, they propose a two-state solution in 1948, a Jewish state in the areas where the Jewish people live and a Palestinian state where the Arab people live. Israel said, that's fine with us. We're happy to have two separate states if that's what the UN wants to do. Israel accepted, the Arab nations rejected. 
Six Arab nations invaded Israel. Israel won the battle. A Jewish state was established, okay? And Jordan controlled the other half of Israel, like the old city of Jerusalem and the West Bank. Egypt controlled Gaza. Then in 1967, again, Israel did not start one war. The Arab nations attacked again and they lost in six days. And as a result of that war, Israel gained West Jeruz East Jerusalem, which is the Mount of Olives. It's the Temple Mount. It's the old city where the Western Wall is. And they took the West Bank and they took Gaza, which was controlled by Egypt, and all of the desert in the Sinai. But then in the 1980s, they Gate, they wanted to create peace, so they gave a lot of that to the Palestinians to control. But all that, and, or, and so, but besides getting into all the details, here's the point. The West Bank refers to the land that is west of the Jordan River. So when the Palestinians say, from the river to the sea, what they're saying, or that these protests, it says from the river to the sea, it's saying from the Jordan River to the Mediterranean Sea, we're going to wipe the nation of Israel out and either kill the Jews or destroy their nation and establish a Palestinian state. It's calling for the destruction of the modern state of Israel. And it is calling for potentially, depending on, in the worst perspective, the genocide to the Jewish people, which is what you saw Hamas do on October 7th. So it's not a freedom phrase. It's basically saying Israel has no right to exist as a people, as a nation, as a state, and we are going to wipe them out. That's what it means when you say that. It's not a dispute. It's not up for interpretation. That is what it means. The land of Israel goes from the, uh, in parts of the West Bank, which is by the Jordan River, to the Mediterranean Sea. Last question. Um, we're a house of prayer. We pray a lot in this room. Um, how can you inform us in regards to our intercession and our prayer for this moment? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think what's interesting is that, uh, we'll, I won't go too deep into this before I give some specifics. There's that uh, we talked about how Amalek and Haman are descendants of Esau. And there's actually an interesting verse in Genesis that says the hands, it says the hands are the hands of Esau, but the voice is the voice of Jacob. And one way that you can interpret that verse in Hebrew is that when the hands, the hands of Jacob become, the hands become weak, when the, look, sorry. The hand, when the hands, the hands of Esau become strong and attack God's people, when the voice of Jacob becomes weak. What that's saying is that to win the battle against the spirit of Amalek only happens when the voice of God's people is strong. When the voice of God's people is weak, the hands of the enemy become strong in the world. Contending and, and interceding in prayer is key. The spiritual warfare is key. Praying is key. 
Where are the watchmen that are willing to stand in the gap? Where are the Esthers that are willing to arise and go to the king and expose Haman's plan and risk everything for the salvation of the nation? And so, yes, I think we need to, first and foremost, we need to pray for the salvation of Israel, a revival among the Jewish people. We need to pray for a revival among the Palestinians. There'll be no peace until both accept the Prince of Peace, ultimately. We need to pray that God would raise up godly leadership among the Israelis and godly leadership among the Palestinians both in government, but also spiritual leaders. I think we need to pray for protection over innocent Israelis and protection over innocent Palestinians. We need to pray for a speedy end to this conflict. The longer it goes, the more people are hurt, the more tragedies that we hear. We need this uh, to end. We need to pray against the spirit of hatred towards the Jewish people and of Israel. We need to pray that the church would wake up and understand that this is a spiritual battle because friends, what ultimately starts against the Jewish people is going to come to this nation, is gonna come against the church. Do the research, Christianity is being systematically destroyed throughout the Middle East in places of historic origin because of radical Islam. And it's coming here. And if you listen and pray, because if you listen to some of these people, they want Sharia law to be the law of their European nations. There is a spiritual battle that is raging and people are asleep and we need to wake up. Look, there's a, there was a, a, a Christian during, a pastor during the Holocaust, he said when they came for the Jews, and I wasn't a Jew so I didn't say anything, when they came for the socialists, and I wasn't a socialist, I didn't say anything, when they came for the homosexuals and the gypsy and I wasn't one of them, I didn't say anything, and when they came for me, there was no one left to stand up. If we don't stand up, there'll become a day when there's no one left to stand up. And it's our responsibility to pray and to stand in the gap. God has set you as watchmen on the walls. Aren't you grateful for this man? Um, so we're gonna can can you give me five more minutes can we can we move into the place of prayer? And can we do it in pods of maybe three, four people? And I'm just gonna, and then you're gonna get a blessing from him. We'll end with that. But I just wanna take a couple of minutes and pray into these initiatives, not just to hear about them. So I got six of them. 
So can this side, this section right here, will you guys pray for an outpouring of God's spirit upon both people? Will y'all pray for innocent people and their protection? Um, will you guys here pray for godly leaders come forth? Will y'all pray for a speedy end to the conflict? Would y'all pray for a, against a spirit of anti-Semitism and hatred in this section over here? Would you pray for the church to wake up and understand it's a spiritual battle? Can we just attack these six initiatives very quickly? And I would encourage you not to leave because you're gonna get a blessing from this man, the Hebrew blessing that involves a song. So let's go after this for three minutes. Ready, go. Just pair off into groups of three or four. <laughs> 